I have a man with me today that I think you're going to be as excited as I am to meet and to get to know. He uh, He's a physician, but he also volunteers his time on the law enforcement side. And, uh, and he does some just incredible things, gets involved in some pretty awesome stuff. So I thought our audience needed to meet him. Dr. Kenneth Chang, welcome to the show. Thank you, Betsy. It's a pleasure to be here. So not our only are you a family practice physician, but you decided uh, over a decade ago that you're going to get involved in law enforcement and not just law enforcement, like, oh, maybe an occasional ride along or a citizen police academy or whatever. Um, but you are a SWAT physician and now you are a SWAT trainer. So let's talk about how you decided to get involved in law enforcement. Well, thank you again for having me. Um, I started getting involved after Hurricane Katrina. You remember back in 2005, Hurricane Katrina hit. I was sitting watching the news and I turned to my wife and I said, I have to help somehow. We need to be able to help them. So after a little bit of time credentialing, a little slowdown in the government, uh, I was deployed to uh, Baton Rouge and spent two weeks in Lafayette, Louisiana, providing medical care at the Cajun Dome. Um, at one time, there were as many as 6,000 residents in the Cajun Dome. I was providing basically rudimentary uh, medical care. Came back after the two-week deployment through FEMA and came and, and said to myself, there must be more that I can do in this community. And so I love outdoors. I looked into search and rescue and search and rescue, as we all know, is a, uh, a sh county sheriff, uh, uh, it's, it's in their jurisdiction. So I joined the sheriff's department as a civilian responder uh, for search and rescue. Did that for two years. They liked having a doctor on the team. It was very handy. And I turned to the captain and I said, you know, this is great, but I'd like to be able to lead a team. And he says, well, to lead a team, you have to go through the academy and be a reserve. And so I said, all right. And I qualified, thank goodness, and went through the academy and graduated in 2008 and became a reserve deputy and continued with search and rescue. So search and rescue was basically as a rope rescue technician. I'm one of the high angle guys. Uh, we repel down cliffs out of helicopters, et cetera. Uh, to rescue and or recover uh, hikers. Um, did that uh, for about eight years or so. And then uh, the sheriff's, uh, I'm sorry, the SWAT team caught wind that, hey, there's a armed reservist uh, who has medical training. And so I joined this, they asked me to join the SWAT team, went through SWAT school, went through tactical medicine school, and here I am. Well, I, that's just so extraordinary. And, and first and foremost, I've got to say that that um, search and rescue, I also live in an area uh, where you're in Southern California. I live in an area where we are surrounded by mountains. We have a lot of tourists um, and a, a lot of people who enjoy the outdoors who get into trouble yeah. when they're in the mountains, they're in the canyons. Um, 
So just for you to, to volunteer to do that, and then not only are you on search and rescue, but you're one of the ropes guys, which is, I, will you explain to people who don't know what that is, what you do? Because it's pretty extraordinary. It, it, it's a lot of fun. Um, takes a lot of physical fitness and, and mental astuteness, if you will. Uh, but we basically are in those high angle situations. Somebody has fallen off a cliff. Somebody has gotten into an area where they shouldn't have gotten into and they can't get out. And we can't drop a helicopter uh, a team down or, or for whatever reason. So we are the team that basically hikes to them and uh, or hikes above them, rappels down and, and perform the rescue basically. Um, it's a lot of training, as you can imagine. Uh, it takes a lot of skill, but uh, it's so rewarding, so rewarding. So you decide to get into SWAT and specifically um, tactical medicine. And, and again, I want to talk to people about that a little bit. When I was, so I started as a police officer in 1980 and, and in the 70s and on into the early 80s, one of the things we were seeing in law enforcement around the country was police officers were essentially being trained that if you got shot, you died. And so what we were having back then were police officers who had been shot and injured, but were not mortally wounded. They would basically lay down and die. Other officers would help them or would do only really rudimentary first aid and they'd sort of wait for the medics. And we really in the 70s and really on into the 80s didn't know much about self-aid, buddy aid, and other aspects of technical medicine. Can you talk about that for a little bit and explain to folks what that change in philosophy and, and, and some of the aspects that you have brought to your own police agency have meant for the safety of the men and women in law enforcement? Sure. So most of us have heard of TCCC or TECC. Um, TCCC, Tactical Combat Casualty Care, was derived out of the military. And it was, this was back in 1996, I believe, where it was determined that the care that was given prior to 1996 out in the battlefield was insufficient. They were using civilian-based care in the battlefield and people were not, our, our, our military was not surviving survivable injuries. And so TCCC was developed. It is the standard for uh, the uh, trauma surgeons um, and it is, it, it, it saves lives. To give you an example, um, if you look at all preventable deaths in the battlefield, 66% occur because of an extremity hemorrhage. 30% occur because of a pneumothorax, um, the trachea deviating, and 6% are a result of airway obstruction. TCCC and now TECC uh, uses the application of our IFAC, our individual first aid kit. And I, I tell all my students, all my operators, that IFAC will prevent 99% of preventable infield deaths. 
if used properly. And our IFAC we know contains tourniquet, maybe two tourniquets, hopefully, two chest seals, a nasal pharyngeal airway, uh, combat gauze, uh, nitrile gloves, et cetera, et cetera. And all of that in our IFAC will prevent 99% of infield deaths. And so that's where it evolved from. And that's what I try to teach uh, when I'm teaching SWAT school or teaching our uh, critical incidents response teams. Um, you have that IFAC. That IFAC is gonna save your life or somebody else's life. Uh, just get to know how to use it. I mean, yes, it looks cool in our Sam Brown and it's got a little cross on there, but you have to know it intimately and you have to be able to use it. And we'll, we will save lives. We have saved lives because of the use of the IFAC. What do you say to uh, police administrators, to um, you know, county or city administrators who control um, the funding? How, you know, what would you say to convince them how necessary this kind of equipment is? Well, we know at least in a, from a SWAT standpoint, in, in at least the tactical operations of a SWAT unit, it's mandated, hate to use that word right now, but it's mandated that tactical emergency medicine be considered in any operational plan, okay? And it's not just, oh, where's the closest trauma center? It's all the components involved in tactical medicine. Literally, we save lives all the time. And it is such an important, that IFAC is such an important component of what we do. It's basic. It is very basic. And what we end up seeing many times is agencies distribute the IFACs after a bad outcome. And that's not the time to distribute IFACs. And do you also, in your trainings, do you train self-aid as well? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, one of the requirements on our team is that all my operators need to be able to self-apply a tourniquet in the dark within 30 seconds. Now, again, going back, you know, uh, 15 years or so ago, um, law enforcement was told, you know, oh, you guys don't have the knowledge to use a tourniquet. A tourniquet, well, you're going to lose your arm or your leg or, or whatever. So much has changed since then. Can you talk about that? <laughs> I, I, I have to chuckle at that because if you have a femoral bleed, you're going to die in two minutes. You better get that tourniquet on because you're better off using that tourniquet, even if it's not put on exactly right, you're better off using that tourniquet because you only have two minutes to decide. The, uh, the, tourniquet, the tourniquet's always gotten a bad rap. And I, I remember back in Boy Scouts, you know, they, they would say, oh, never apply a tourniquet because once a tourniquet is on, you're gonna lose that extremity. And that's nonsense. We today, orthopedic surgeons, for somebody who's getting a knee surgery, knee replacement, et cetera, tourniquets on for three or four hours, sometimes longer. So a tourniquet is perfectly appropriate. Now, it's not appropriate to remove a tourniquet if you're not medically trained, but applying a tourniquet is, is very, very basic, and it should be taught everywhere. Oh, that's fantastic. 
So I, I want to back up a little because I, I keep thinking about um, here you are, uh, uh, you know, a high level physician and you find yourself in the police academy. Now you're in the reserve academy, but you're with the Orange County, California Sheriff's Department. This is a large agency. Very large um, agency. Extremely um, organized in their training and their policies and procedures. I mean, they're a very squared away agency that is admired around the nation. Um, but here you are, you, you went through so many years of education um, to become a physician. And now here you are in the Reserve Police Academy. What was that like? Um, it was a fantastic experience. There's tremendous support. Um, it wasn't easy. And just like a regular academy, a lot of people drop out for a variety of reasons. They can't cut it, whatever. Um, but it's, it is, what better way to give back to the community? I can't think of a better way to give back to the community. And, and our department's extremely supportive. You know, our, our sheriff, Don Barnes, he's extremely supportive of reserves. And in fact, he's corrected me a couple of times. I, I introduced myself as a reserve deputy. He goes, no, you're a deputy that's assigned to the reserve bureau. And, and you know, it's that kind of stuff that the support, the pats on the back, because we don't get paid. We, uh, we, we get paid in pats on the back and, and we get lots of it. So the department is extremely supportive. You know, and I'm so glad to hear you say that because there are, um, there are reserve agencies. I, I've trained many, many, many around the nation. And there are, are um, some states who are trying to do away with their reserve programs as a um, as part of they use it as a part of police reform and it's very frustrating because um, it's been my experience as somebody who's been a trainer for 30 years uh, nationally that um, reservists and the training that they go through are pretty extraordinary because again you're not getting paid for this and, and, you know, yet you're reflecting the, the, the agency. And I, I really have always found that reservists are um, uh, just extraordinary in their commitment, not just to the job, but to the training and education. Talk oh, about absolutely. that for a minute. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 I describe it this way. I get to participate. It's not that I've got to do it. I get to do it. And uh, it's a totally different mindset. But again, it, it goes back to giving back to the community. And, and this is a fantastic way to give back to the community. So when you made that switch from search and rescue to, I mean, to SWAT, did you come home one day and tell your wife, listen, honey, I think I'm going to get involved in SWAT. What do you think? How did that go over? Yeah, well, it's <laughs> kind of interesting because I She's always apprehensive about me, you know, rappelling down steep cliffs. And I said, okay, I'm trading that for, uh, I'm trading that for sitting in the bear or being the last person in the stack. So it, it's, my wife is extremely supportive, extremely supportive. And just to clarify, I still do the rope rescue. I'm, I'm still on the rope rescue team. They like having a physician on the team. I like being on the team. 
And uh, so I, I do both, my, but my primary uh, duty is, is being the tactical physician. Yeah, you're that guy that, uh, you know, Hollywood's kind of obsessed with two things, doctors and cops. <laughs> you're, I feel like you need your own TV show. You're, you're, you're I've got both bases covered. <laughs> you truly do. So, so let's talk about, so we're in this atmosphere of uh, the vilification of law enforcement. There's talk of defunding. There's talk that, you know, oh, cops are killers, you know, all, all of this. Um, what would you say to citizens who don't know that much about the profession other than what they see on cable no news or, or whatever that think we, we are a bunch of uh, bad guys? What would you right. say to them? It, it, it's similar in medicine. You, you hear about the bad things. You hear about the malpractice case, the, the operated on the wrong limb, et cetera but you don't hear of all the successes and all the, all the great things that happen. So uh, my, I try to be a good steward and um, explain to people, you know what, there's, there's good and there's bad in, in everything we do, no matter what profession you're in. But at least the men and women of Orange County Sheriff's Department and the great majority of, of law enforcement they're squared away people. They, they want to do what is right. And this, I don't like to get into the politics of it, but it, it's just, we always hear the worst things and it's unfortunate. Right, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. That's people are always, uh, they tend to hear the negative, see the negative on the news in, uh, in both professions. Right, right. Um, so one of the things you decided to do was to become a trainer mm -hmm. and, and so talk to me about that experience because, because again, you're imparting, um, life-saving skills onto not, uh, other physicians, but onto law enforcement officers, whether they're, uh, rookies or, you know, seasoned SWAT operators, what, talk to me about that experience. So kind of as a natural progression, um, I tend to be, I, I'm, I'm the most knowledgeable, at least from a medical standpoint or a tactical medicine standpoint. So it was natural for me to be a trainer. Uh, so I, I'm a trainer in, in our SWAT school, uh, an instructor. And I also, in addition to uh, SWAT school, teach tactical medicine to our critical incident response team uh, members and as well as patrol deputies, anybody that will listen almost. Um, but it's an important aspect because you can make even greater changes than just one person treating one, one individual. I now get to multiply that. It's kind of like that false, uh, uh, force multiplier concept is I now teach 20 CERT deputies, or I teach the at our SWAT school, uh, both in agency and outside of outside of our agency. And it's a, uh, I try to implore that it is likely that they will save a life in the two hours they listen to me. So uh, I just think it's of great importance. 
That's such a great way to put it. It's it's that whole concept of of not if you do this, but when you do this, and that that is uh, that is one of the um, best aspects of successful training, not just in law enforcement, but but in any profession. Right, Doctor. Where can people? Uh, where can they find you? Where can they find more about the sheriff's department's um, volunteer programs too? Yeah, um, virtually, uh, my understanding is virtually all sheriff's departments and, and law enforcement agencies have some type of either civilian or reserve type program. And I encourage people to get involved, really check it out from the inside. Um, our, our sheriff's department, uh, ocsheriff.gov, uh, is a great place for, we, we have a, a tab for reserve information for civilian information uh, so it's a uh, it's a place where it's a great resource it's a great resource and, and i'm certain most agencies have something like that and it's a great program to to uh, to get involved in my dad was a volunteer for his own sheriff's department that's one of the reasons that led me to a career in law enforcement yeah. so yeah we really encourage people to get out there and and volunteer in some way with your local agency i gotta tell you doc this has been a fascinating conversation and i can't uh thank you enough for taking time out of your very very busy schedule to spend time with us so we sure appreciate it and if you would like more information about the national police association visit us at nationalpolice.org Last year, law enforcement officers were involved in hundreds of thousands of use-of-force incidents. A use-of-force incident is when an officer must use nonverbal tactics to gain control of a dangerous situation. Put the knife on the ground. In many cases, officers have no choice but to use force when a suspect doesn't comply with a lawful order. Use-of-force is always ugly. No one likes it, especially police officers. Together, we can help de-escalate these dangerous encounters. Help police officers by complying with their lawful orders. Don't attack, attempt to disarm, or flee from an officer. Use of force is an officer's last option. Most incidents can be avoided by not resisting arrest. If you feel you've been wrongfully detained by a police officer, then seek a legal solution after the encounter has been resolved. Let's keep everyone safe. Comply now and complain later.